Welcome to Lymphedema Podcast. I'm Betty Westbrook, a certified lymphedema therapist and the voice behind Lymphedema Podcast. The purpose of this podcast is to provide answers and explanations for people affected by the lymphatic disease, lymphedema. This podcast is for patients, family members, medical professionals, and anyone interested in lymphedema. Each month, I will discuss a new topic related to this disease to help you learn more and navigate better your journey ahead. Between shows, you can catch me on IGTV or Instagram TV, as well as monthly live Q&A sessions. I'm so passionate about teaching others about lymphedema that I created this podcast just for you. Thanks for joining me. I hope you're ready to learn something new today. Disclaimer, as a certified lymphedema therapist, all information provided is based on my professional experiences and education. I recommend that anyone who feels they have lymphedema or have been medically diagnosed with lymphedema seek in-person medical treatment from a certified lymphedema therapist. Hello, and welcome back to episode 57 of Lymphedema Podcast. Last week, we heard part one of the three-part series conversation with Dr. Chen on lymphedema surgery. Today, we continue that talk with part two. Um, in general, patient asks, would I be a, a surgical candidate? Nearly everybody is a surgical candidate for lymphatic reconstruction. As I said, it's not a second-line treatment. Anyone with lymphedema should be offered the option of both, well, in my opinion, lymphedema therapy and lymphedema surgery. The contraindication for lymphedema surgery, it's not really unique, and this is how I practice. Other surgeons might be, uh, might be somewhat different, but in my practice, there is no contraindication that's specific to lymphedema surgery. The contraindication to lymphedema surgery is contraindication to all other surgery. And that is when the patient is medically fragile, um, they are, it's not safe for them to undergo major operation under general anesthesia. And a common medical contra contraindication would be uh, severe obesity. For example, a patient with BMI of 60s. Now, it's not considered safe for this particular patient with BMI of 60 to undergo any form of surgery unless the surgery is life-saving. It's an emergency then we bite the bullet and do it. Otherwise, uh, lymphedema reconstruction surgery, uh, for the most part, are not emergency surgery. They're still elective surgery. And for a patient in that category who are interested in surgery, we would advise the patient to try to lose weight. And if they're in that range of BMI, uh, they usually will need some professional help. And we're fortunate that here at Cleveland Clinic, we have lots of expertise. I heard the other day that there are more than 200 weight loss programs available here at Cleveland Clinic that we can refer the patient to. So uh, getting back to your question, all just about all patients are candidate for lymphedema surgery. And if, if they're interested in lymphedema surgery, there is a procedure that um, would be most optimal for them. It's not a matter of whether they are a surgical candidate. Well, assuming that they are not uh, at high risk for undergoing surgery, then it's not a matter of whether they are a candidate for lymphedema surgery. It's really more of a question of which procedure would be the most appropriate procedure for them. 
Right. And that just that circles back to individualized approaches and care for exactly. each patient. Is there any situation or special circumstance where a patient can be awake during surgery instead of, you know, full anesthesia? Maybe it's light. I don't know. I'm not a surgeon, obviously, so I, and I've never had surgery, so I don't know the term for that. Um, but I see it on Grey's Anatomy where they do brain surgery sometimes and the patient's awake. And I know that's totally fake, but I'm just wondering um, if there is ever a situation where the patient could be awake. I have not seen it in my career. And maybe that says something, maybe it doesn't. I, I haven't seen it. Uh, there are times that we intentionally perform the surgery with the patient awake. As you know, their procedure done under local anesthesia. LVA is a great example. And in fact, uh, uh, during the lockdown earlier this year, uh, we were offering LVA surgery with the patient awake just because the operating room was a very limited resource for us. And LVA can certainly be performed under local anesthesia. In fact, uh, even before COVID, we did that for a while before. And we definitely can still offer LVA under local anesthesia for patients who has concerns about general anesthesia. Although I can tell you it's much more comfortable for patients to be under general. Uh, patient who had gone through LVA under local anesthesia always told us, they were so bored because the procedure is long and they, well, average LVA, therapeutic LVA takes four to six hours mm -hmm. and patient would need to later absolutely skill still. As you can imagine, we are working on extremely tiny blood vessels as tiny as, as a hair. Yeah. Uh, and uh, patient would need to be completely still. And that's hard to do. I mean, even an involuntary muscle twitch could yes. cause a so, problem. So when we perform LV under low anesthesia, we need to give the patient a break. That means they break the sterile field, they get up and stretch, yawn, and then they lay back. Wow. So yeah, that, that's not the most efficient way to do it, but um, it can be done under low anesthesia. But getting back to your question, I haven't seen anyone who woke up during the surgery. Hey everybody, this is Elise Cantu, here to announce the Virtual Oncology Physical Therapy Summit. You don't want to miss this amazing virtual summit happening on April 17th, 2021. We're covering topics like lymphedema, chemotherapy-induced peripheral neuropathy, cancer survivorship, and how to navigate OncoPT as a new professional. You don't want to miss it. Early bird tickets are on sale now through February 28th, and I'll see you at the summit. Well, I want to talk a little bit about um, what I think I consider a special population in the lymphedema world, um, pediatrics. Is this a an option for kiddos? Um, can children, babies, toddlers? You know, I'm not. I'm, we'll get into age later, but is this an option for kids with primary lymphedema? Most definitely. So Maybe. I think there are some overarching principles when, when it comes to considering surgery. We're considering different treatment options, more invasive, higher risk, the higher gain treatment option compared to more conservative, 
um, treatment options. In general, the younger the patient, the more lifespan ahead of them, the more aggressive, the more fundamental a treatment you want to ear towards, just because this person has a long expected productive lifespan ahead of them compared to someone in their 80s. Right. It's not that we are treating our patients differently. We, well, we are treating our patients differently, but we want to offer the patient the best treatment for them. So for an 80 year old, it may not be as important to try to aim for the cure. Now this person wants a satisfactory management. So uh, an 80 year old can play with grandsons, can do what he or she enjoys doing, but cure is probably uh, not, not that important. Whereas as you can imagine a five-year-old that's quite different. So in general, well, for pediatric population, uh, there are definitely still candidates for surgery. And actually their, their surgery isn't more difficult contrary to what most people think. Most people would think that uh, if lymph vessels are very small in adults than in babies and uh, younger children, it would be even smaller. Uh, no, they're not, they're not smaller. And uh, so treatment planning is always an involved process and it involves not just considering the benefit of a treatment, but also the risks and whether towards the end, a surgical procedure is recommended depends on this risk benefit analysis. Is it a favorable ratio? And is it significantly favorable to justify the risks involved? So it, it's never a straightforward yes and no generalized. We always do this or we always don't do this. It's individualized. But in general, we are more aggressive when it comes to younger patients and our um, goals for treatment is set higher for younger patients. That's great. Meaning we want to of course, best case scenario, achieve cure. Uh, short of achieving cure, we aim for a higher functional status. And so much like I asked just for general population about qualifications or contraindications, um, I'm thinking specifically to a case that um, the mother, um, but it's the doctor, the study with Dr. Sevick in um, Houston. Um, she invited me into that procedure or study with her daughter, where the findings were basically that in her daughter's hands, there were no lymphatic vessels. There was no lymph flow. Um, in that case, um, for a child who, I mean, under five, maybe around five now, it's been a, a while since this study, what, what is something that could be done there or is, is imaging conclusive enough to say, hey, you're not a candidate if you don't have the vascular um, perfusion, I guess is the right word, um, in this study, then you're not a candidate. First of all, uh, we need to understand 
the limitation of endosining grain lymphography. If, uh, so I wasn't there at the study, so I don't know how many injections were performed. In order to see maximal amount of lymph channels, if you're trying to visualize all available lymph channels, we need to think about lymphosomes. Most common injection when people perform ICG lymphography or the so-called diagnostic study, they're not mapping study. The purpose or the intention isn't to map out all available lymph channels. So the most common injection patterns would be two or three injection at the hand or wrist. Mm -hmm. That's what we most frequently see. Those are the di diagnostic injection patterns. When you do those two or three injection sites, that means you would only see lymph channels draining those two or three injection sites, and you won't be seeing anything else. It's a limited so, picture. Yes, it doesn't give you the complete picture. In order okay. to see all lymph channels, you need to inject all lymphosomes. So that's the first thing. The second thing is even if the lymph channels are present, but there is very high pressure in the lymphatic system, in the lymphatic vessels, there's severe lymphatic hypertension. Then you can imagine your contrast, your ICG are not gonna go anywhere. Even if you have hundreds of lymph channels sitting there waiting to pick up the ICG, but you don't have a favorable pressure gradient, so you're not seeing anything. Not seeing them doesn't mean that they're not there. That's the second thing. The third thing is the ICG technology, depending on the machine, but all of them have limited penetration. Usually it's averaged out to be about two centimeters. So you're not seeing anything deeper than two centimeters. Basically, the, the child that you mentioned, we know for sure that the child still has a good amount of lymphatic channels. And just think about it. If there's no outflow conduits, then the arm would be so big that uh, the skin probably would burst if there's no outflow conduits to decongest the lymph. So for sure, the child still has lymph channels. It's just, we're not seeing them. And all the technology has its limitations. So, uh, I mean, many, many of my colleagues know I embrace ICG lymphography. I, I think the technology is pivotal uh, in lymphedema management. However, we do need to, in order to use it well, we need to know its limitations. Lymphedema Podcast is supported by Bryland's Feet Foundation, Juzo, and Medi USA. Learn more about each sponsor on our website, lymphedemapodcast.com, and listen to their episodes while you're there. How about genetic findings? If a patient, um, has a positive genetic trait for lymphedema, are they still a candidate for um, a surgery? So that's definitely an area of active research. Uh, well, uh, when it comes to primary lymphedema, we definitely have seen primary lymphedema patients, when you look at their family trees, you, you definitely see a hereditary pattern. But you've also we've also seen plenty of patients who have sporadic pattern. There's no one else in the family has it. Uh, they're the only one. So there's definitely also non-hereditary. But whether they're hereditary or non-hereditary, currently it doesn't 
affect treatment planning. It doesn't affect their surgical candidacy. It doesn't affect how these procedures work. When it comes to primary lymphedema, probably what would affect surgical treatment planning and how well the surgery will work is how severe is their hypoplasia or underdevelopment. Someone who's 90% developed would behave very differently than someone who's only 10% developed, as you can imagine. I think that's great news. I, I'm kind of trying to take it all in. Um, in the pediatric world, which I'm, I'm a huge advocate for pediatric treatment and education and the parents um, working with um, the only nonprofit out there for kids, Bryland's Feet Foundation, I've, I find myself seeing um, and meeting these families from all over the world who have all these questions. And I just, I feel like that was a wave of good news from you that, that it's, an, it's an option for them to have surgery. And not only is it an option, but it's kind of, you know, front line. Like that should probably be their first approach instead of spending decades trying to do conservative treatment, potentially that's going to leave them um, with scar tissue and deformity and all kinds of other issues that we could really get ahead of with this technology and this approach. Wow. I think that's exciting. Um, so can you, I, we kind of talked about it a little bit, but is there an age limit? How old, how young, what's the sweet spot for getting these kids in? Um, what can you, what can you tell me about that on age? So when it comes to how young, well, how, how I think we kind of briefly mentioned that there isn't a upper age limit. Um, the most senior patient that I had was 88. Mm -hmm. uh, and there's also isn't really um, a lower age limit on how old or young a patient uh, can undergo surgery. Really the contraindication is again medical. Is it safe for the patient to undergo general anesthesia? Is it safe for the patient to undergo surgery? In general, when the patient is really young, there's some anesthetic consideration also. And um, also when the patient was really young, uh, due to the patient's inability to follow commands and cooperate, uh, sometimes we don't get the best evaluation. Um, for example, it's, it's, it's a major project to perform ICG lymphography in, in, in a child who, who can't communicate well, who can't uh, tolerate needle stick without putting the child under sedation. So all these are really more of a consideration resulting in or, or offering surgery to someone who's really young, say four-year-old, three-year-old difficult. It's not so much their age, it's other age-related factors such as their inability to cooperate and our inability to perform a proper diagnostic workup. I can tell you the ICG lymphography that I witnessed, not only was it difficult, I would say it was traumatic um, for everyone in the room, especially the little girl. Um, I stayed with that family um, in the hotel that night and I left earlier the next morning. 
Um, and she, I mean, she woke up in the middle of the night. She was just screaming and the poor mother had to sit and hold her um, during the treatment. And, and she was about three at the time. So that's just really young. Um, and they were really thankful to be able to be in the study. But I know that at that young of an age, it was traumatic for her. Um, I, I'm, I'm a mother now, I wasn't a mother then. And for me, it was hard. And I, I'm almost about to cry now thinking if I had to hold my son down like that for three, four hours while they tried to look, you know, between his arms and legs and it was traumatic. So I totally understand what you're saying that that needs to be a consideration. If the parents see, you know, this is present at birth. So say they have primary lymphedema, it's evident at birth and they are advised to, you know, use conservative treatment, maybe the first five years, four years, um, would you say that they would still have favorable outcomes still if they wait um, an extended amount of time instead of trying to have surgery sooner rather than waiting? As I said, it's, it's benefit versus risk. If the patient uh, at, at birth already shows severe swelling and we can, even without having performed imaging study, speculate uh, the child most likely has fairly severe hypoplasia. In that case, it would be worthwhile to perform ICG lymphography early. And by the way, ICG lymphography, a lot of patients are saying that it's the most painful experience in their life. It's worse than childbirth. It shouldn't be the case, but how to perform ICG lymphography without with a lot less pain to increase comfort, that, that's really a separate discussion. So we won't go into it right now. Um, but as I said, if the child presented at birth with uh, really severe swelling, then there's concern about severe hypoplasia, then imaging study, there needs to be an early evaluation of the lymphatic system. And timing is important. And but before we decide whether we can, we can wait or we need to offer more timely intervention would depend on, of course, where the patient stands. So if the patient is at a phase that LVA surgery, we expect favorable outcome from LVA surgery, and we see that this patient is about to move on, is at, at the verge of moving on to the next phase, and next phase would likely result in much less efficacy from LVA, then we should consider offering surgery earlier. I'll give you another example. On the other hand, if the patient has demonstrated stability, we had an initial, and this is why ICG lymphography is so valuable. Let's say patient had an ICG lymphography at age two, and then in six months down the road or a year later, we repeated the ICG lymphography and we saw no changes. And that indicates, demonstrates stability. And ICG lymphography when performed properly is extremely sensitive. It will pick up changes way earlier than patient feeling anything. Most frequently we would detect changes in underlying lymphatic system without the patient feeling a difference. Okay. Both 
favorable changes and adverse changes. Patients were improving or worsening without the patient knowing. So these will uh, definitely affect treatment planning. That's good to know. So basically, it's customized and it's individualized and it's much like, you know, the approach with the adults. You kind of assess the situation and you see if, if and what works best. So I think that that's great. Um, I love your approach. Um, I love that it's not cookie cutter. Um, I feel like you cannot be cookie cutter in the lymphedema world. Not every treatment and every protocol will work for the same patient. Um, so I, I appreciate that about your approach. Um, I'm sure there are many students um, learning from you to really think outside of the box and assess the whole patient and the whole situation. So I, I appreciate the work you're doing and really the students you're grooming, I should say. That's kind of an extra little side note there. I wasn't planning to <laughs> um, talk about that, but I think that's great how you're really just building up the next generation of surgeons and your work will continue and it's, it's, it's exciting. That's all for today's conversation with Dr. Chen. Join me next week for the final installment of our conversation on lymphedema surgery and his novel approach for lymphatic reconstruction, the vascularized lymph vessel transfer. Mother Teresa says, loneliness and the feeling of being unwanted is the most terrible poverty. This podcast is here for you to find friendship and a community for your journey with lymphedema. I hope you enjoyed learning more about lymphatic surgery with Dr. Chen today. Email me with your story if you would like to share lymphedemapodcast at gmail.com or visit the website lymphedemapodcast.com to submit a topic for another episode.